Luke chapter 2, we begin in verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger, and when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Amen. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I said this morning, and I'm sure I said this last week, and I probably say this every time I'm in this portion of scripture from Luke chapter 2 that I find this night just incredible the night that is here depicted a night that was interrupted by this angelic choir you never know do you just where you're going to find an outstanding choir performance usually when you think of such things you might envision a very large cathedral type church with a huge pipe organ that takes up an entire wall, a very large choir with a multitude of robed choir members, and a full symphonic orchestra. In comparison to that kind of vision, most choir performances, especially ones that come from small churches, might seem a little obscure and probably nowhere near as majestic in the sound they can produce. But if you think that a small church setting might be obscure and lacking in sound quality, what about a choir performance in an outdoor setting? 
not an outdoor theater setting such as what you might have at Conner Prairie for their seasonal performances of various things, but an obscure country setting in a field at night without any kind of lighting beyond what the moon and the stars provide and without any kind of sound amplification equipment to make the choir loud enough to be heard more than a few feet away. I find it fascinating, as I just said, to try to envision the impact on a group of sleepy shepherds whose toughest task was probably staying awake as they're engaged in the mundane activity of watching over their flocks by night to all of a sudden see the heavens open and there in that obscure country setting in a field by night they are enabled to behold what could perhaps be labeled as the greatest choir performance of all time. This is a heavenly choir, you see. And it's a large choir. The narrative makes that very plain. A multitude of the heavenly host, verse 13 says. And their performance is described for us in verses 13 and 14 as praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. It's this line especially that I want to focus on for just a few moments this afternoon. Praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. I'm going to zero in even a little further on that particular part of the statement that says, Peace uh, uh, on earth, and on earth, peace. Okay, what about that? Peace on earth? Did the angels get it right? Peace on earth? Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill toward men? One might argue, I suppose, that they must not have known their history very well. For the history of mankind, the history of this world, leading up to that moment when they appeared, was anything but peaceful. All you have to do is read the Old Testament, or for that matter, read just about any history book, and you find strife and turmoil among the nations. Indeed, we we usually measure history, don't we, when we're reading history in the broad scale, uh, we, we think of one war to the next war. Okay, World War I, World War II, Korean War, you know, and we, we think of history in, in, in those terms. Not in terms of peace. And the small interval that exists, the, the small time interval that exists between wars. You could say that... Um, The Old Testament, even, is a record of strife and turmoil among the nations. And that the angel's statement, that or Christ's statement, rather, that there would be wars and rumors of wars, that statement is as true historically as it is prophetically. Historically, nation has risen against nation. And even within the kingdom of Israel, you find the same thing. 
a nation divided. How long did the nation last before it was permanently divided? Uh, Following the reign of Solomon, the northern tribes, the southern tribes of Judah, and there would be brief instances where they would attempt to be at peace with each other. It would never seem to last very long, and even the attempt at it is not viewed as right in God's eyes. For the most part, they would go at it with each other as well as going to it with other nations. So what are the angels talking about when they say, on earth, peace, goodwill toward men? Perhaps they're indicating that even though the world had not known peace, now it would, now that Christ was born. But then we follow Christ in his time in this world. There doesn't appear to be any peace at all during his earthly ministry. When Herod, the ruler of the Jews, became jealous of Christ, perceiving him to be a potential rival, we read the terrible account in Matthew's Gospel of how he slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. It's in Matthew 2.16. No peace on earth at that time certainly not in and around Bethlehem. And when you follow Christ in his earthly ministry, you find him constantly having to argue with the Jews. Hardly a peaceful time when he had no place to even lay his head. One attempt after another to try to catch him in a gotcha moment so that the Jews could have an excuse to turn him over to the Roman authorities. His apostles had high hopes when he entered into Jerusalem triumphantly. What a glorious moment that was when it seemed that he had won over just about everyone. It's kind of a climax, you know, to his earthly ministry. And it was an impressive parade in which he rode upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And so we read in Matthew 21 and verse 9, And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Oh, had they now at last attained the peace on earth that the angels spoke of? Well, the Jewish authorities on that occasion were so full of anxiety that we find them in chapter 12 of John's Gospel, verse 19. We read how the Pharisees said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. Behold, the world is gone after him. Would this bring in the time that the angels announced? Would Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem at last bring peace on earth and goodwill to men? Well, alas, just a couple of days later, they would arrest Christ, carry out a sham trial for Christ, and in that trial they would condemn him to death and execute their sentence by nailing him to a cross, His enemies undoubtedly thought that they had secured their peace and preserved their status in their offices. But surely that's not what the angels had in mind when they said, peace on earth, 
goodwill toward men. It is true he would rise from the dead. It is true that he's ascended into heaven where he makes intercession for his people. But what has ensued in this world during that time of Christ's intercession following his death, burial, and resurrection? What has followed? Still nation rises against nation. We've gone through a war of independence, a civil war, two world wars. We fought in Korea, in Vietnam, in Iraq, in Afghanistan. We're at war against terrorists. We're told to be vigilant for attacks that could happen at any moment and in any location. Given such a context of war and strife and crime and tragedy, I can understand the sentiment that asks the question, did the angels really get it right? Or is this scene in Luke's gospel just a warm-hearted story that's designed to make us feel warm and fuzzy inside, which makes for nice pictures and quaint sayings for Hallmark Christmas cards, but which in fact has little or nothing to do with reality. Now in order to answer the question as to whether or not the angels got it right, we really have to ask another question. And that question goes something like this. Why is there so much strife and crime and war and misery in this world anyway? How did this world get into the predicament it finds itself in today? When I think back to my own experience as a young man living during what's called the Cold War era, it was the Bible's answer to this question that really convinced me that the Bible was the authoritative word of God. It used to bother me. That as a nation, we were in a race to build more bombs and build bigger bombs than anybody else and other nations, most notably the Soviet Union, which was trying to keep up and go even further in building more bombs and bigger bombs than we were. Why is that? That used to perplex me. Why do the nations compete among themselves to have more destructive capability than anyone else? And why are we so bent on self-destruction or mutual destruction? I heard a podcast not long ago uh, by Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House. Uh, The man is a brilliant historian. I wish he wasn't such a moral flop. He would have been one I would have liked to have seen uh, advance uh, in office that he was interviewing a guest uh, in one of his podcasts, uh, and his guest was an expert in nuclear arms. You know, and this is in the wake of uh, President Putin making uh, nuclear threats in connection with the Ukraine war. And Speaker Gingrich was interviewing his guest and dealing with the notion of how Serious, this could become where nuclear war to break out. It had been such time since I had heard uh, the statistics that were being 
put forward by this expert, but basically we have the capability within the world today to blow up this world a hundred times over and pretty much wipe it out. It's come that far in our ability to be so destructive. Does it not make you wonder why? The Bible provides the answer. And it presents it with amazing simplicity. Indeed, you could say that the Bible diagnoses the world's problem in a single word. In a small word, three letters, sin. That's the problem. James puts it this way in his epistle, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Now, when you think uh, in very broad terms of nations and alliances and coalitions and world wars, it's easy to think that the problems of the world are out there problems. But what James is saying in his epistle is that it's not really such an out there problem as it is a right here problem right here within our own hearts. Our pride keeps us from admitting this. Our pride wants to make the world's problems out there problems. And in our pride, we like to view ourselves as not being a part of the problem at all. I'm easy to get along with, we say to ourselves. I don't have any desire to kill my neighbor or to steal his goods. If everyone in the world shared my outlook and ethics, this world would be a peaceful world, we say to ourselves. I'm for peace. Why can't everyone else be just like me and also be for peace? The deceptive lie behind that kind of thinking, however, is just this. I'm for peace if I get my way. Most of the things in this world that agitate me are things that are not fair to me. Not fair to me that someone else got the promotion at work that I should have gotten. Not fair to me that someone else is favored more than I am. Not fair to me that rich people have so much more than I have. Why should my neighbor have a better car than I have? He's no better than me. Why should my neighbor have a bigger house than I have? He doesn't deserve that fancy house, and I don't deserve this tiny, broken-down old house. And any faults or failures such as outbursts of anger or even petty thefts that we commit, we justify by thinking that life hasn't been fair and someone owes me something, therefore my temper or my stealing or my cheating is justified, or at the very least, if it's sin, it's not that great a sin. And I'm not responsible for it because someone else or some circumstance in life makes my sin fair. Common mode of thinking. And when we think that way, whether or not you realize it, you become a microcosm of all that is wrong in the world. 
Take that kind of thinking that minimizes your sin and magnifies the faults in everyone else. Multiply that kind of thinking by the number of people that are in the world today, and you can account for why the world is the way it is. It's just like James says in his letter, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? So it's against that backdrop, that backdrop of sin, that the angels made their announcement, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. They weren't mistaken. They weren't naive. They knew what kind of world existed in which they made their announcement. And so the thing that we have to consider now, finally, is what in the world did they mean when they appeared to those shepherds and said, peace on earth and goodwill toward men? What in the world did the angels mean by that? And to understand their meaning, we must look at the previous part of their announcement. When they said, on earth, peace, goodwill toward men, that announcement followed something that they said earlier. We've been considering all this time the very last part of their message. The previous part of their message provides the basis for the last part of their message. Look at the very first thing they said to the shepherds, beginning in verse 10. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. A Savior has come. A Savior was born. This was the good tidings of great joy. The long-awaited Messiah had at long last arrived. And this announcement is not only beneficial to the Jews, but this is good tidings for all people. The key part to the announcement is that word, Savior. In the other account of Christ's birth given to us in Matthew's gospel, the reason for his name being Jesus, given to us in verse 21 of chapter 1. We looked at this this morning. This is the angel now giving instructions to Joseph as to why he is to name the child and why he is to name the child by the name the angel gives him. And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. I almost thought I would get away with um, now telling the story that I probably tell every time I recite that verse. It's the story of Ian Paisley over in Great Britain, Northern Ireland. He had a friend who was a high-ranking man in the military, was in one of the military academies, and he wanted Ian Paisley to come and preached to the cadets that were in officer training. And Dr. Paisley agreed to preach to them, but he did so upon the condition that this man, this officer, would first share his testimony of salvation with this group of cadets. So the ranking officer did this, and as he told his cadets what Christ had done for him, they began to jeer and scoff and mock and make fun of him. 
And he, with great difficulty, got through the procedure. And then it was time for Ian Paisley to preach. And he stood up and he said to this group of cadets, I perceive today that you really don't want me to preach for you. So here's what we'll do instead. We will just turn the time into a question and answer time. And then one of the cadets, one of the leading scoffers, he stood up and he kind of strolled to the front of the room and he says in the hearing of them all, why not Bill? Why not Fred? Why not Robert? Why did they call his name Jesus? And Ian Paisley, and if you knew him, this is not hard to picture. He had such a a, a gift and an authority about him that he was able to take control in these kinds of situations. So Ian Paisley says to this young man, he says, just a minute, young man. Don't sit down. He went on to say, you may not realize this. It may be the very first time it's ever happened with you. You've actually asked an intelligent question. And now the whole crowd got behind Ian Paisley and they're scoffing and mocking the student, you know, who thought to turn the whole thing on Ian Paisley. And he turned to Matthew one twenty one, and he read to them, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his, his people from their sins. And he was able to preach that text to them. And it gives the very reason, doesn't it, for why his name is called Jesus. We considered it a little bit this morning. Jesus corresponds to Joshua in the Old Testament. Joshua means literally in Hebrew, Jehovah saves. This is why the angels call him a savior. This is why Joseph was instructed to call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This was his aim from the very moment he arrived in this world. Everything he did, everywhere he went, everything he taught, every miracle he performed, it all served that common goal to save his people from their sins. And in order to accomplish his aim, he had to live a life of obedience to his father's law. We considered that this morning. His obedience must be perfect, not only in its external compliance to the law, but in his heart as well. So every deed he performed and every word that he spoke and every thought that he entertained must be in perfect obedience to his Father. And he rendered that obedience. This was what made his trial before the Jews such a sham. He had never done anything wrong. Not even when sinful men tried to drum up phony charges against him, could they make anything stick. He was blameless. He was, as Pontius Pilate would say, without fault. And yet he was pronounced guilty of blasphemy, because he had the nerve to affirm that he was the Christ. And so he was taken and abused and scourged and crucified. Well, might we ask peace on earth? 
How is this peace on earth? This was nothing short of a travesty of justice. This was the triumph of sin and wickedness in the earth. Or so it seemed. The thing you have to realize, though, is that even this was by divine design. This is what Peter proclaimed on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Oh, they were the ones that took him and crucified him but in a mysterious way that defies a mere mortal's comprehension. It was all by divine design. Indeed, it had been foretold hundreds of years earlier. Listen to the familiar words from Isaiah, which had been written centuries before in Isaiah 53 and verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now at last we're able to reference the angel's message about peace on earth. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Or as Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, oh, peace then has come to this world The angels didn't get it wrong. They got it right. It's come through Christ, who is the Prince of Peace. It's come on the basis of his atoning death. It's come because Christ has paved the way for sinners who have been alienated from God to be reconciled to God through Christ. It's true, and we don't try to deny it, that this world is still filled with sin and misery and war and crime and despondency and depression. But it's also true that in the midst of such abysmal circumstances, the believer in Christ can nevertheless know peace. My peace I give unto you, the Lord said. And then comes an important key. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Oh, don't ever think of the peace that Christ brought and the peace that the angels announced is peace in terms of how the world might define peace. The Christian's peace, you see, is not based on smooth sailing through life over calm seas under clear skies. It's based on the knowledge, rather, that Christ has made the way for the Christian to be at peace with God no matter what life throws at him. This is why Paul refers to the Christian's peace as a peace that passes all understanding, Philippians 4, 7. At the very time you might expect the Christian to be in turmoil, he can be found in peace. This is not to suggest that he doesn't feel pain or feel acutely the trials of life. It is to suggest that there is something deeper, something firmer, something spiritual that is found at the core of his heart, and that something is the peace of God. Glory to God in the highest, the angels sang, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. How can this be? How can there be peace on earth and goodwill toward men? This is how it can be. 
Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The fact that this announcement of the Savior's birth is unto you means that this is a glorious truth that must be appropriated by faith. You must appropriate Christ to yourself by faith. And in so doing, this peace that is announced by the angels can be yours. Listen to this benediction that Paul pronounces on the Romans in Romans 15 and verse 13. This is a great text to close on. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Oh, may this peace that the angels announced and that Christ accomplished be your portion, no matter what goes on in this sin-cursed world. Let's close then in prayer. Let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, We thank you for the peace that is our portion in Christ. We thank you that this is a peace that passes understanding. It's not a peace that makes for smooth sailing in a sin-cursed world. But it is the peace of knowing that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So Lord, grant us this peace, we pray especially as we keep our minds and hearts stayed on Christ. For thou hast said that thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. O Lord, may our minds indeed then be stayed on thee. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.